as the kids head out this morning, um, if we could, let's, let's begin with prayer, and uh, we'll go from there this morning. Gracious Father, thank you uh, for this morning. Thank you for this time to be in your word. And uh, I pray that uh, as we look at Exodus, as we look at these verses this morning, that your spirit would abound in this place, uh, and that he would convict us and he would change us. And Father, would your spirit give us eyes to see and ears to hear, grace in our hearts to obey what you have for us. Father, I ask that you would guide my words. May I never deviate or stray from this text, but let me stay on the truth found in Exodus. It's in your son's holy name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, I'm excited because any time I can talk at a church or have an opportunity to preach and I can start with Bob Dylan, I feel like I have really arrived. And so I'm excited this morning that even though we're going to get to Exodus, we're going to get to Dylan first um, because you got to like some Bob Dylan. And so Bob Dylan has a song um, that I really like. And, and the, the song you may know, you may be familiar with it, uh, but the song is You Gotta Serve Somebody. And if you haven't heard it, I just want to go through a few of the lyrics with you here. You see, I think Dylan hits, hits home. He says, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. He says, you may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress. You may be somebody's heir, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Be it the devil or the Lord, you are going to serve somebody. And there's other verses uh, in this song, and I would encourage you to look up the lyrics um, because of what it hits home at. You see, what Dylan hits home at what Exodus is going to hit home at is that we all serve somebody. Every one of us is serving something. The question is, what is it are you serving? What are you devoting your time to? What are you devoting your thoughts to? Where does your money go? You see, everything that we do shows what we serve, and that's what Dylan gets at. That's what Exodus gets at. Who do you serve? If we could walk away today after church and if you're at lunch or you're with somebody and they could say, what on earth was church about? And if you don't remember anything else, I hope you could remember this big idea from this text. It's that we're all going to serve somebody, but God calls us to serve him alone. We're serving something. If we search our hearts, if we look at ourselves and we're honest, we're serving something. Something is our God. Something is our good, which is greater than everything else. But God calls us to serve him alone, not just something. And so we get into this text, and it's easy for us to read this passage and look at the Old Testament, and we think that these verses uh, are, are written for people long before us, that they're not for the New Testament church, but rather it's for the Old Testament church, and ah, it's not really for us, right? I mean, this is Moses. This is like 1500 B.C. I mean, come on. You know, what, what do we got here? Um, but this is for us today, and, and, and just a quick way to show how this is for us, let's, I'm going to go directly to Christ. 
Because Jesus studied and he obeyed these commands. He obeyed these specific commands here today and he explicitly, he explicitly rather fulfilled these in obedience when he was in the wilderness. So I will take you to Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. I want to read this for you. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 8, it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him, and the angels came, and they attended him. You see, here is Jesus walking on earth. He is tempted by Satan. And when he is tempted in the desert after 40 days of being there, what does the devil say to him? He says, if you worship me, if you will have another God other than God, if you'll worship me, I'll give you everything. I will provide everything for you. And what does Jesus say? He says, away from me. Worship the Lord your God and serve only. Jesus, in that, quotes the Old Testament. And so in that temptation, we see Christ say, no, no, no. This isn't about serving anything other than who God is. And so why is this relevant? Let's, I mean, looking at Christ right there shows us immediately why it is relevant. But also, if we look at the New Testament, we're going to look at some pieces today. But Paul and John refer back to this commandment. Um, Christ refers back to it in his teaching. Um, and so this is so important and helpful for us today. And if I could kind of give a framework here, um, over the next three weeks, uh, the Ten Commandments are going to be talked about. And so a biblical scholar by the name of Ligon Duncan, I think, provides four helpful questions as we look at the commandments, as we study them on our own, or even in church uh, in a group setting. But Ligon Duncan suggests this, four questions to ask yourself about these commandments. What does this commandment teach me about God? What does this commandment teach me about Christ? And then what does this teach me about Christ? Um, I'm sorry, rather, what does this teach me about the Christian and his duty? And what does this teach me about the church and how it should function? Um, and so as we look at these over the next three weeks, I think that those four guiding questions are helpful to us as we look at this text. And so we're going to get there. We're getting there. And I want to do a brief kind of overview before we tackle chapter 20. But you see, what we're going to see is that Israel has always struggled with idolatry as we talk about this today. Uh, and, and, it, and it may be hard for you to believe that somebody could struggle with idolatry. Um, we know the importance of monotheism to Israel. Um, we've read the pages of the New Testament. Uh, we know that the Jews of Jesus' day were monotheistic, and they were all about serving God, and that's what they were supposed to do. But if we take just a brief survey of the Old Testament, we realize that the nation of Israel has struggled with idolatry from day one. And I don't think they are very much different than you and I. You see, Abraham, the father of Israel, the father of the Hebrew people, was born in an idolatrous nation and in an idolatrous culture and an idolatrous society. We have no doubt that his father was an idolater. And we have every reason to believe that Abraham himself, before he was called by God and he had, he had a God-changing moment in his life, probably also served idols before he left. And we know that his descendants struggled with it. If we go to Genesis 31, we see Jacob and Rachel are fleeing their father-in-law Laban, if you remember that story. And what does Rachel do? They're fleeing. They're getting out of town. And Rachel secretly brings these household gods, packs them up. And what does it do? It almost gets them in some really big trouble. It almost ruins them because they have these counterfeit gods with them. And we're looking at Moses now. And, of course, he's already struggled with Israel's allegiance to the gods of Egypt. We've looked at that previously. 
uh, but they're going to continue to struggle. In Exodus 31 and 32, we're going to get into this situation with this golden calf and these people worshiping an animal made of gold while Moses is up on the mountain with the Lord. And at the end of Joshua's ministry, in chapter 24, this is an incredible thing to show just how hard Israel's heart was. But in Joshua 24, um, Joshua gives a message, and he speaks to the people, and he says to them, choose today who you will serve. And do you remember what the people say? They say, we're going to serve the Lord. And you know what Joshua says in response? No, no you won't, and you haven't, and you're not going to. Right? So even at the end of this period, they're going into the promised land. All these things are happening. And Joshua says to them, who will you serve? And he even tells them, you're not going to serve God. Not wholeheartedly, not as he desires. And at the end of Israel's nation state, you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, even Ezekiel. What do they talk about? Idolatry and counterfeit gods. Why are you serving other gods? Why are you bowing down to Asherah? Why are you bowing down to these other gods? Why will you not worship God alone? And if you've read the story of the Old Testament, you know in the Old Testament, man, the, the stories of the kings, that is just a roller coaster ride throughout the entire thing. You have one guy, you have one king that serves God and the nation returns. The next king turns away from God and worships idols and so does the whole nation. And it is this up and down movement until God eventually says, enough. I'm sending some countries some kingdoms to execute judgment on you, and they're going to ruin you, and they're going to destroy you. And so we have this entire Old Testament struggle with idolatry. It's not something that was new to them. It's not something that is new to us. But here's the, here's the reality for Israel. They had a problem with idolatry. They had a problem with serving other gods. But, I, but Israel was saved for what reason? If we think back in Exodus why did God redeem Israel? Why would God save Israel? It was so that they could worship him. God saved a group of people so that they could worship him. You and I, if we're honest with ourselves, we struggle with idolatry. And why were we saved? We were saved to worship God. We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we struggle with idolatry. So let's turn to our text. So in uh, Exodus 20, verse 1, so the verse emphasizes here that God is speaking the Ten Commandments to the people himself rather than through Moses, an intermediate. And so God is speaking these things to the people. Uh, it, is, it is remindful of me of Genesis 1-1 in this. Uh, you're familiar with this verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So when the Old Testament begins, who is the, who is the figure creating and doing? It is God. It is God initiating. It is God starting the entire creation process. And yet here in chapter 20, verse 1, who is initiating, who is starting these things? It is the voice of God speaking to his people. God is the initiator. God is the one that begins these things. But yet as God is speaking, here's what we learn. The people become so frightened, so frightened that they can't even do it anymore. Hearing God's voice turns them to ruin. They fear they will die. At the end of chapter 20, Verses 18 to 21, it says, When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and the smoke, what did they do? They trembled with fear. They stayed at distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we'll listen, but don't have God speak to us or we're going to die. Moses says to the people, Don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you and keep you from sinning. And the people remain at a distance. What does, God, what does Moses do? Moses goes up on the mountain. He's the one that approaches. And so at the very beginning 
of this passage, we see that God is the one starting out. God is the one initiating. He is speaking these words. And what does he speak exactly? Verse 2 tells us, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So what's important here? God is here reminding them who he is. And so in this verse, in verse 2, we have the preamble and the prologue to the Sinai covenant that appears. The preamble is the portion of the covenant that identifies the parties to the agreement. This occurs in the first part of verse 2. So who, who are the parties identified? We have God as the lawgiver, and then we have the people as the recipient of the covenant. We have a two-party covenant that links God and his people in this legal relationship. And then in the prologue, that's the part of the covenant that explains how these people came to be related. How did these two groups come into contact? And this is indicated by the second part of verse 2, where God says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I've rescued you. I've redeemed you. I've claimed you as my chosen people. That's how we came into this relationship. And he's reminding the people of Aaron's staff that swallowed up the, that swallowed up the snakes of Pharaoh's wise men. He's reminding the people of all the gods he defeated in Egypt, as we've talked about. Gods of the Nile and the frogs, the animals and the sun. And he's reminding the people, why would you trust any other so-called God? Why would you trust yourself? You didn't escape from Egypt on your own. It wasn't your own skill. It wasn't your own might. It wasn't anything that you did that got you out of Egypt, people. Remember, I am the one that called you and redeemed you out of slavery. When you were stuck at the Red Sea and you were about to get swallowed by Pharaoh and you were in your own strength, did you deliver yourself? He's reminding the people it is about him. It is about him delivering. It is about him redeeming. My friends, it's no different with us. We are the ones stuck in sin. We are the ones that could not love God unless it was initiated by him. We are the ones who were called to worship. We are the ones who need to entirely rely on God. Egypt, not Egypt, but rather Israel was redeemed for worship, and you and I have been redeemed for worship. And so in verse 3, he goes on, and in this statement, he says, you shall have no other gods before me. Notice how this commandment begins. The Lord uses an emphatic word for no. Remember here, it's God who is speaking, and he makes it clear that there are no gods before him. As one commentator put it, it is an absolute prohibition that you shall have no is the same language used elsewhere in the Bible to describe the relationship in marriage between a man and a woman. You shall have no other wife. You shall have no other husband. The two of you are supposed to what in marriage? Become one flesh and forsake all others. This is the language of covenant loyalty, and this command in this verse pertains to God's people's exclusive loyalty to him as Lord. But I want to continue on the marriage uh, analogy, if you will, because that's what's happening here is marriage is a good analogy for what we have. You see, you can't have a, a both and relationship with your spouse, at least not for very long. So let's talk about what that means. So men, let's go with me here just as an example. Suppose you came home one day and you said this, honey, it's good to see you. You give her a smile. Around the corner, you say, look, I want to introduce you to someone who's very special to me. You're also very special to me, you tell your wife. You want to affirm her. You're very special to me, but I've met someone else. Here's who she is. She's lovely. And I think she's great. Um, and look, I just want you to know as our relationship continues, I'm going to spend time with you, but I'm also going to spend time with her. And it's going to be about 50-50, but I want you to know I still really care for you. I still love you. So just 
you're going to get to know her. You guys are going to be friends. It's going to be great. All right, so if you came home and did that, and you explained this to your wife, two things. One, if you got up off the ground, and when you woke up and came to, okay, <laughs> what would your wife say? What would be the response of any spouse in that situation? Your wife would likely say, it's me or her. And if you want me, send her away, and I never want to see her again. Get her out of here. And now, if your wife said that to you in a great deal of passion, would, would anybody at all say, man, she's being proud, fair, intolerant, cruel. Can you believe how she responded to me? I just wanted to split time with her. No. We, we wouldn't respond in that way, right? We would say that she's being the sort of wife that she ought to be, that she has every right to be a jealous wife. Just as God has every right to be a jealous God. And God does not want to share time with anybody. But just as marriage is an exclusive covenant between two people, so is our relationship with God. And he's telling the people, this is an exclusive relationship. Serve nobody else. It's an incredible display for us. In marriage, we leave our parents and cleave to one another for as long as we live because it's exclusive. Uh, and so it is with God. And so what I want to talk about is that love here is at the very heart of the commandment. The Shema in Deuteronomy brings this very fact to life. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. I love it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You see, love is an affection, not a decision. Right? As one author puts it, to love means to stick to your choice. You, you choose God because why? He first chose you. He first loved you. He first saved you to worship him. And now forsaking all others and all other types of gods, you commit yourself to him unreservedly. You see, there can be no and in our relationship with God. Love and worship him above all others. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus himself refers to the Shema. In Mark chapter 12, somebody asks him, of all the commandments, which is the most important, as they try to trick him and trap him? And what does Jesus say? He quotes Deuteronomy. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You see, we're all going to serve something, if we go back to the big idea. We're all going to serve somebody. But what, Deuteron what Exodus and Deuteronomy and all of the scriptures proclaim and scream so loudly is we are to serve God alone. But what does it mean that we shouldn't have gods before him? I want to kind of unpack that. What are we getting at there uh, to not have gods before him? So when God speaks this here in verse 3, um, he doesn't mean I have to be first on the pecking order. He's not telling us that, look, have no other gods before me, so I'm number one, and then if you want to have 24 other counterfeit gods, that's great. But just keep me as your number one and then worship all the other ones when you leave. That, that's, that's not the idea um, of what God is getting at. When he tells us uh, that we can have no other gods before him, he's saying there can't be any other gods alongside of me or in addition to me. I will have no rivals because I am a jealous God. And this idea applies to us as people. We love to have God and something. We love to have God and success. We love to have God and money. We love to have God and politics. We love to have God and you fill in the blank in your own heart of what other gods you want to have alongside. What other counterfeit gods invade you? 
But we can't have God in social status. We can't have God in money, God in power, God in political structure. We can't have God in me. We can't have those things because God says it's me and it is nobody else. And so as we drive further into verse 4 through 6 and we look at this second commandment about counterfeit gods, about idols, about making idols, um, I just want to share something with you of how much this verse relates to me in my own life. Um, when, I was a, uh, when I was in college, um, I played football, not for too long, but just for a little bit, and I had this really bad injury, and um, the, I had a sled come back on my leg, and it just skinned my leg to the bone. It was nasty, right? And so it had quite a long recovery process. And so at the time, you know, I was much younger, and I thought that hard work, um, I thought that practice, that diligence, and your own strength is what you needed. That's what I thought. So at that time, what I didn't realize is my own strength, my own work ethic, all those things, which I will tell you are not bad. They're good things to have. But the problem was those things in my own life had become a counterfeit God. It had become what I worshipped. I worshipped my own hard work. I worshipped my own physical strength. I worshipped what I could do on my own without God. And so for, oh my gosh, four to five months when I couldn't walk, when I was on crutches, when I was just trying to get around, when I got an infection in my leg, and when I ended up in the hospital for a week, and when I had surgery, and all these things happened to me, you know what screamed in my head? You know what, I, what, what lesson I took away from is? It's me. God is who I serve. Because in those months and in those weeks, did my own strength matter? No, because I was on crutches, just trying to get around, slipping on the concrete, falling out on campus. It didn't matter. When I was laid up in my dorm room, it didn't matter how strong I was. It didn't matter what I could bench. None of that mattered. When I laid up in the hospital, it didn't matter. The only thing that mattered at that time, which screamed so true, is serve me, Nicholas. Serve God alone. Forget everything else. Forget your own strength and your abilities. If you serve me, we can do anything. See, if I remain in Christ, as John fifteen five tells me, if I remain in him, I can do anything. But apart from him... I'm just struggling in my own stuff and in my own gods and in my own sin. And through that whole time, that's what I realized. And so this next passage, this next part, God is telling us that counterfeit gods, put them away. You don't, you, there's no other gods but me, and then you don't make anything to try to be a god. Sometimes you and I have a hard time understanding idolatry or we misunderstand it. Idolatry was not merely the practice of worshiping by means of statues and pictures, but rather it was an entire elaborate religious system and lifestyle. All of it running counter to what God desires, which is true worship of us. But you see, the attractions of idolatry in the Old Testament are just as much binding and, and powerful on us today as they were then. But what is idolatry? Let's try to wrap our head around that. The Heidelberg Catechism tells us this. Uh, idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. Though in American culture, we don't tend to see trees and sticks and stones being bowed down to, we're foolish to think that we don't have the same temptations of idolatry as they did in ancient Israel. There's a book that I love by Tim Keller. It's called Counterfeit Gods. Uh, if you haven't read it before, I would encourage you to get a hold of it. It's a tremendous piece of literature. But there's something cool that Tim Keller does in this book, and I'm going to quote him here. Um, I'm quoting Tim Keller, Counterfeit Gods. But here's what Keller writes. 
end quote. He says, there is a difference between sorrow and despair. Sorrow is pain for which there are sources of consolation. Sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others. So that if you experience a career reversal, you can find comfort in your family to get through it. Despair, however, Keller writes, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. When you lose the ultimate source of your meaning or hope, there are no alternative sources to it, and it completely breaks your spirit. You see, our hearts are a factory of idols. As Matthew Henry once said, whatever is esteemed or loved, whatever is feared or served, delighted in or dependent on more than God, that, whatever it is in effect, is the idol. It is the counterfeit God in your life. If you felt something be taken away where you felt like you couldn't exist, where you couldn't move on anymore, where everything crushes you, you have found yourself a counterfeit God. You have found yourself something that you serve and hold more dearly and true to you than God himself. Paul in Acts chapter 17, when he's in Athens, he can't believe all the idolatry going on. He can't believe all the counterfeit gods in Acts chapter 17. In fact, he tells them, he stands up in the meeting at the um, Areopagus and he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. You see, Paul in the New Testament sees that these people are so hung up in idolatry, so hung up in worshiping other things instead of God, or worshiping God and all these other things, that just to make sure they didn't miss anything, they leave something there for the unknown God. Just in case everything else we've gone through wasn't enough, we'll leave it unknown. And if you want to go to the unknown God, take your stuff there and figure out what you need to create on that end. And so Paul testifies to this. He says it again in 1 Corinthians. He says an idol is nothing at all in the world because there is but one true God. So I want to pause and ask a question. What, what do you love the most? What do you desire the most? What do you want the most? What do you strive and aim for the most? What do you think about the most? You see, these answers reveal to us who we serve. Keller continues and he says that a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that if you lose it, it destroys everything. I was thinking about what that looks like. And unfortunately, it seems like every four years we have a group of people in our country that go through some type of dramatic loss as their counterfeit God has either been held up in office or removed. And we have this tremendous either despair, we can't move on, we don't know what to do, or this tremendous, hey, life is great for the next four years. And then four years later, some group is unhappy again, and they're in despair, and how do they move on, and what do they do? And another group is happy, because they think everything's right with the world. But to me, what that, what that reveals is how entrenched our culture is in counterfeit gods. Because our heart is a, fact, is a factory, rather, of idols, uh, there's an Old Testament scholar that, um, that I like. His name's Doug Stewart. Um, and Doug Stewart um, is a professor. He's right commentaries, all kinds of stuff. And so what, what, what Doug Stewart did one time is he went through, and he went through a series of things to which he said, uh, this is why the Old Testament people, this is why Israel was so attracted to idols. 
And so he went through and talked about ways and, and reasons why they were so attracted to them. And, and what I want to do in the next few minutes here as we unpack and continue to unpack this counterfeit God, this idolatry, is I want to look at those things as well. But instead of talking about uh, how were they important to Israel, let's talk about how they're important to us. Let's dig down and let God uh, speak to our lives on how um, our idols do these same things and the attractions to them. Um, And so the first thing uh, that um, Dr. Stewart would point out um, is he would say, uh, idolatry is guaranteed. It's a guarantee. You see, if you want to go to an idol, if your idol is success, if your idol is love, if your idol is your family, if it's money, if it's your kids, whatever your idol is, you name the counterfeit God, it's guaranteed. It's there for you. That's an attraction to it. You can always go to it. Okay, we can't see God, can we? We can't see God. Nobody's seen him. But you can see your idols. It's guaranteed that it's there for you. And who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want a guarantee when they show up? Also, idolatry is selfish. That's an appeal. We're selfish people. If we haven't figured it out yet, we're very selfish. The moment you get married, you realize exactly how selfish you are. There is nothing that sharpens you and refines you more than marriage with a spouse. When they call you out for your selfishness, you got two things to do. You can either say, yeah, you're right, or here starts World War II and a big old fight happens, right? If, you, if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. But we are selfish people, and idolatry, the appeal to that is that it is selfish. You pick the God you want to serve. If you want to serve success, pick it. If you want to serve money, pick it. You pick the counterfeit God. Pick it. You want to serve the church building? Make the church building a counterfeit God. We're great at making them. It's unlimited, the number. But the, but the thing, the attraction, is that it is so selfish, and we as people are inherently very, very selfish. It's easy. Following God is not easy. Following God and serving him only and following what he desires of us, that is hard. That is countercultural. If we serve God, if we really read his New Testament and the Old Testament and we follow his decrees, our lifestyle should run opposite of our current culture. It should run opposite of what we see in the media and everywhere else. It is not easy to serve God, but to serve your own invented idols, it's a piece of cake. You're making them up as you go. It's easy to follow what you make up. Idols are also convenient. In the Old Testament, there would have been franchises all over the place that they could have gone and bowed down to an Asherah pole at all these different spots, all these different high places. They didn't have to go anywhere to actually worship it. Oh, you know, we're kinda, it's kind of like going to Sonic. Where's the nearest Sonic? Let's go find it. And you go find Sonic to eat. What was convenient in the Old Testament, oh, just go find the Asherah pole. Go find it, bow down, offer a sacrifice. Let's move on. They're all over the place. Instead of having to go to the temple and worship there where the priests were located. And for us, idolatry is also convenient. It's not that we can, it's not, idolatry is everywhere, I will give you that. Um, but it's, it's, it's convenient for us. It doesn't make us strive after God. It doesn't make us spend time in prayer and be diligent with him and know him. But it is something of convenience. Idolatry was also normal. In the Old Testament, idolatry was everywhere. There was only one group of people that served a monotheistic God, and that was Israel. All the other nations of the world were serving multiple gods, lots of gods, tons of gods, and it was normal to worship all these other gods and serve them. But what God called Israel to do was to worship him alone. 
And so for us today, if you think about our culture, think about Western society, you think about where we live, it would be perfectly normal if your God was success. It would be perfectly normal if your God was money, if your God was your children. You name the counterfeit God, and it would be perfectly normal. Nobody would blink an eye. They wouldn't say, man, how, man you're really chasing after success too hard. How dare you? You're not going to get that from most people. But rather, it's an accepted part of what we have. It was pleasing to the senses as well. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, when they served um, other counterfeit gods, they went and it was right before them. There was beauty to it. They could see it. It was great, and it pleased their senses. When we satisfy our own selfish desires, whatever they may be, when we, when we serve our own counterfeit gods, it's very pleasing. It's very pleasing to us because we're making ourselves feel really good because of what we have decided to serve. And so what was true of the Old Testament is just as true for us today with what we serve and how we serve. But I want to look uh, a little deeper here. Um, In verse 5, did you notice, uh, if it stuck out to you, I'm glad it did, because let's address it. Uh, Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. But did you hear this part? Punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Did, that, did you hear that and go, what? Is it, God does that? What does that mean? Because when I read the text, I have to go, what does that mean? What are we talking about here? How do, how do we further explain this? So let's talk. Um, so, so this part of the text is greatly misunderstood. Uh, it does not represent any type of assertion that God actually punishes an innocent generation for sins of the previous. Rather, this verse speaks to God's determination to punish successive generations for committing the same sins they learned from the parents. God will not say, I'm not going to punish this generation for what they're doing as they break my covenant because, well, their parents did it. That's not, that's not what he's going to do. Uh, God will punish generation after generation if they continue in the same sins as a prior generation. Uh, but the statement, did you notice, is contrasted with what God longs to do, which was what? To show those who have covenant loyalty love for a thousand generations. What a contrast. Uh, it's the greatest numerical contrast in Scripture. God showing um, his real desire to his people who remain loyal to his covenant. And so the third covenant here today sums up and comes back to our big idea, right? The big idea being we're all going to serve somebody, but God desires us to do what as people. He desires us to serve him alone. So the, the third commandment says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will, hold any, the Lord, sorry, will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. So the word vain can mean empty, nothing, worthless, uh, to no good purpose. And we are forbidden from taking the name of God in a manner that is wicked or worthless for wrong purposes. Uh, And this command encompasses uh, any misuse of Yahweh's name, any way of making light of it or mocking it in a disrespectful way. You see, in God's name, in the name Yahweh, it signifies his essence. To speak his name is to recognize his awesome power, his holiness, 
even to invite his response in our particular situation. You see, we serve a sovereign creator of this entire universe who before the foundations of the world, as scripture says, Christ was slain for us. That there was a plan from the beginning and then we speak his name in vain, we are speaking against a perfectly holy, powerful God. The scribes in the Old Testament held this name Yahweh in such high regards that when they came to the word as they were writing, they would stop writing, wash their pen, take a bath to cleanse themselves, and then resume their work as a scribe. Now, that sounds like a lot, but just picture this. If you were a scribe and you're going through the Old Testament and you're writing those scrolls, Yahweh is used 6,519 times in the Old Testament. So from start to finish, you're going to take a bath 6,519 times. And you're going to wash your pen 6,519 times out of reverence for the holiness of his name. Out of reverence for the holiness of his name that they didn't even want to speak. And so God says, you're not going to misuse my name. It is holy. It is reverent. But if we serve God, if we serve him alone, we're going to serve somebody. If we serve him alone, then we're not going to misuse his name because he's number one in our life and everything else falls away after it. So, so how do we conclude this? How do we end? How does idolatry end? How does counterfeit gods end? We don't have time to necessarily unpack it all, but I, I want to close with this. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Paul writes this to the church. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I will not do justice to this text in the next couple of minutes. It has probably four to five sermons within it. So I'm not going to do that. But if you look at what Paul tells here is this. If we want to end counterfeit gods, if we want to search our hearts and bring an end to idolatry and serve God alone, here's the key. You can't just say I'm going to give up success as my, as my idol or whatever it may be. It needs replaced. And so what we see in scripture is that Jesus replaces our idols. Christ replaces our counterfeit gods. And so look at what Paul says. He says, therefore, I don't even have time to unpack the therefore because it's so rich, it encompasses all of Romans 1 through 11. But he says, therefore, I urge you in view of God's mercy. Have you thought and meditated on the mercy of God in your own life? Have you considered the mercy of God? Have you considered that you were dead in your sin and in your trespasses with no life at all, but God chose to do a work in you. He chose to redeem you, to buy you back from your sin, to go to the cross for you, to pour out his blood for you, resurrect so that you could be raised with him today and walk in newness of life. Do you realize what God has done for you in his mercy? Do we meditate on that? Because if we do, if we meditate on his mercy, then we can offer our bodies as a living sacrifice that will be holy and pleasing to God. It's our true and our proper worship as he's called us to do. And in doing that, folks, people of God, we won't conform to the culture of this world. But our minds are transformed. They're renewed. You see, Christ replaces counterfeit gods. Christ replaces our idols. And it is only Christ who 
can do so. As we come to communion here today, I would challenge you as I will challenge myself to sit in prayer for a few moments and to ask God, what are the, what are the unknown counterfeit gods in my own life? And what places have I replaced you, God, in him serving something else? Or have I become, have I, have I grown to a place where it's God and other things? Where I'm not exclusively serving God, but rather it's God and all of these other things. And if that's true, God, by your spirit, speak to my heart today before communion. I want to confess those. I want to move on past that. I want to grow in you. I want to reflect on your mercy to me. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are grateful for this time and your word this morning. Uh, it's such an honor to get to talk about Exodus and, and the commands that you gave us, the ten words. Father, I pray that by your spirit you would speak to us, not just today, but in the coming weeks, uh, that the idols in our life we can confess that we can move past those, we can replace them with you because we're all going to serve something. And you, God, through your word in Scripture, call us to serve you alone. Amen.